Are you willing to serve the Lord? Are you willing to help the Lord? Perhaps that's not a question that we think about often, and perhaps our first response to that is a definite yes, or perhaps it's a no, maybe you're in between. Your first response may not be a definitive answer at all. It may be a a question, like, does God need my help? If I do want to help God, how actually would I go about helping God? Thinking about God needing help may actually give us some anxiety, right? The God of the universe needs, needs help. As we continue in the book of Judges, uh, chapters 4 and 5, recall that the book begins with a double introduction. Chapter 1 gives us kind of a context of where the children of Israel are. They've come into the promised land that God has given to them. God has promised their forefathers that he would give them a land, and he has brought them to it. He sectioned the land off for them, but their leader Joshua has died. And we also see in chapter 1 that they're not taking the land quite as they should. We see the tribe of Benjamin not driving out the Jebusites. We see Manasseh not driving out the Canaanites. We see Ephraim, Asher, Dan, Naphtali not taking this promised land that God has given to them. Outside of Joseph and Judah, who have some success, we see that they're ultimately failing. Chapter 1 explains what is happening, but it's not actually until we get to the second introduction of Judges in chapter 2 that we start to see why. So while the first introduction explains what happens, the second introduction in chapter 2 kind of gives us a spiritual analysis of what's going on. We learn that the people are rebelling against God. They are doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And instead of overcoming their enemies, they're actually being overcome by them. They're being oppressed. They're being enslaved. And it's not until God raises up a new judge after Joshua that they begin to return back to the Lord. So after Joshua, we learned about Othniel, who was brave, who didn't take a wife from among the people, the pagan people around him, took a wife of his tribe. We learned about Ehud, who was the second judge, who was somewhat surprising to us. He's not obviously virtuous like Othniel, but we learned that God's salvation comes in rather surprising ways. In this case, through an unexpected left-handed assassin. So like chapters 1 and 2 are in parallel, chapters 4 and 5 equally are in parallel. We'll see in chapter 4 what has happened to the children of Israel after Ehud dies. And we'll spend most of our time in chapter 5, which is the analysis of what is happening. 
It's a beautiful analysis. We find that Deborah is not only a wise judge, but also a songwriter and singer. She gives insight of what is happening in chapter 4 through a song. It's a song of victory, but it's also a song of warning and reflection. And one of the themes of the songs that we'll reflect on today, and it's the primary topic of this sermon, is are you willing to help the Lord? Are you willing to help the Lord? The song begins with praise, chapter 5, verses 2. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. The song ends with a prayer for the defeat of God's enemies and blessing to God's people. Verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. So we'll see both extremes in our text today. We'll see those who are not willing to help the Lord. We'll learn from them. We'll see those who are willing to help. We'll gain wisdom from them. And in the middle, we'll answer the question, does God need my help? Who really needs So this sermon is in three parts. Who is not willing to help the Lord? Who really needs help? And who is willing to help the Lord? What we'll see is those who help God are those who are helped by God because they trust him. Those who help God are those who are helped by God Because they trust him. So our first heading, who is not willing to help the Lord? In Deborah's song, she begins to draw attention to those who are not willing to fight for God. Uh, In this instance, uh, the enemy God wanted them to fight against were the Canaanites. As you heard in the scripture, uh, Sisera was the general of King Jabin's army. Judges 5 and 7, villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. Now, Deborah is not trying to make much of herself here. She's simply pointing out the cycle which we have heard. She's simply pointing out the connection between the people's idolatry and their willingness to fight. Recall that when Joshua was their leader... They obeyed God. They had peace. When he died, they rebelled against God, and they were oppressed. God raised up Othniel. When Othniel was raised up, they had peace. They followed God. When Othniel died, they rebelled against God, and again, they were oppressed. So she's not not pointing so much at herself, but she's making the point that this cycle is continuing. And so the key isn't Deborah in particular, but the key is their rebellion. Listen to chapter 5, verse 8 in the New King James. We can see this more clearly. It simply states, they chose new gods, then there was war in the gates. 
Their willingness to fight for God and have peace is tied to their idolatry. It's tied to what they worship. So we can't fully understand their unwillingness to fight if we don't connect it to their idolatry. Now, it's helpful to understand what idolatry is. There have been many recent thought leaders and some, some, some older ones that, have, that gives a glimpse into the root of idolatry. It's really based in Colossians 3 and 5, where Paul equates covetousness to idolatry. So scholars like Augustine and more uh, recent leaders like Timothy Keller define idolatry as disordered affection. Disordered affection. So something that you love that's a good thing, you make an ultimate thing. It starts to serve in the place of God. You love that thing more than you actually love God. Disordered affection is just not limited to the thing that you love the most, but it also applies to actually our entire longing, our entire list of the things that we love. So you, you may have the first thing right, at least in your, in your mind. You may have God in the highest list of, of your love, but what if you have something that should be third as fifth? What if you have something that is fourth as second? Let me give you an example. It's okay to love your job. It's also okay to love your family. But what if you love your job more than you love your family? You'll likely be neglectful. Neglectful husband or wife, you will likely maybe ignore um, your kids. A, a meme I seen recently that, that said in 20 years, the only people that will remember you worked late are your children. And that, that stings us, right? Because when we set things higher than they ought, we act in ways that we shouldn't. This doesn't just apply to, to those with, with families. This applies to, to singles as well. How, how often have, have we maybe neglected relationships in, in pursuit of things? Maybe you forget to call mom or dad back, back home, or you forget to, to nurture a friendship because you have something out of order. What if you love leisure more than you love work? Ever seen that? Maybe you, you become lazy, or you become prone to get-rich-quick schemes. So there's so much more that can be said on this topic, but the point is clear. The people have chosen other gods. And because of this, they have a disordered affection. Their love is not in the right order. And in particular, their fear is not in the right order. They clearly fear their enemy more than they fear a God who has given them a command. Now, what they fear may, uh, may not land on us the way it should. Uh, in, this particular, uh, in these particular passages, they, they fear uh, iron chariots. And to us, that might sound, you know, really goofy, right? You know, when we think about weapons of war, uh, we think about tanks and, and ships. 
Uh, we think about all types of satellites and, and bombs, right? I um, was reminded of uh, the first time I drove into Charleston and saw the USS uh, Yorktown. I'm sure some of you have seen it. It's a, it's a massive ship, right? 900 feet long, right? You can land an airplane on it. It can attack submarines. You can imagine being a little, little boat, right, going up against this massive ship and being afraid. Or perhaps you've been at a sporting event and, you know, what happens at the climax of the national anthem? You, you see these F-16s fly by so fast and you can almost feel, feel their, their power in your chest. It, it takes your, your breath away. You're kind of in awe, right? Like, how is something so fast and so powerful? It's in the air, but I can feel it here in my seat. That is how the iron chariots landed on the people of that time. They're referenced here in chapter 4. They're also referenced in chapter 1. And the chariots put so much fear in the heart of the people, particularly Barak, but not just him, that they won't follow the commands of the Lord. Judges 4, 6 through 8. She sent, her being Deborah, she sent a suburb Barak, the son of uh, Abinam and Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, and taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river of Kishon with his chariots and his troops. I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. This is how men say they're scared, right? I'm not afraid of the dark, but if you could just, you know, leave the hallway light on when I get up in the middle of the night, it'd help a little easier. Deborah reminds him of God's command in of an assured victory, and he hesitates. So we, fe- we see that fear can cause us to not willingly help the Lord. It can disorder our affections for God. Fear can cause us to put our own comfort and safety over the clear direction from God. Fear of man can cause us to act in ways inconsistent with God's word in order to please our friends, our family, our coworkers. Fear of rejection can cause us to not share our testimony with believers. Have, has anybody ever been there? Financial fear or insecurity can cause us to not be cheerful or generous givers. But our trust in God should overcome our fear. We should fear God more and love God more than anything else. We should trust that God will fill all of our needs, even when we're generous and even when we give out of our want. We should trust that God will surround us with believers who will pray and support us and not gossip or judge when we share our struggles. 
We should value God's affirmation of us as loved and accepted even when we're rejected for our faith. We should trust in the God of all comfort during times of suffering and loss. This is how we overcome disordered affection. Trusting in the promises of God. John Piper is also helpful here. If you were concerned about your own priority list, right? Do I have the, do I have the right thing second or third or tenth, right? John Piper explains that if we and when we put God first, it tends to sort the rest of our affections out, right? If we follow God, if we love God, you know, we don't have to think so much about if we're loving these things in the right way. The Holy Spirit guides us. The Lord leads us. We get, we get instruction from the word. And so really, ultimately, loving God first orders all the rest of our affections. So we see that some are not willing to fight because they have chosen other gods. And this has led to disordered affections or wrong feeling. In addition to that, we can see from the text that others have wrong thinking. Deborah sings about a kind of analysis paralysis that's going on among some of the children of Israel. And she's, a, she's genuinely amazed by, by this. We'll see clearly why a little later. But if you look uh, at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 5, she says, Why do you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed behind the Jordan and Dan. Why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. She's amazed at the people who weren't helping. Just to kind of give you a quick geography lesson, the the part of Israel they're at is just northwest of the Sea of Galilee. This is why you hear the references to ships. This is why you hear the references to, to the sea. And instead of the people helping overcome the enemy that God has promised victory for, they sit back. They, they have this searching of heart, almost as if they're not sure who's going to win. You can hear seeds of the pleas from Elijah, 1 Kings 18. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. It could be fear that's causing them to waver and second guess. But I really think the reason they are not trusting in God and obeying God is they don't know him as Deborah knows him. Recall that the very reason that God put them in the promised land amongst their enemies He actually states it pretty clearly. He says, you have not been tested as your forefathers were. Remember, their forefathers had gone 40 years in the wilderness, right? They knew the manna from heaven. They had great battles in the book of Joshua. But these people haven't. In Deborah's mind, though, she is very clear that God will get victory. 
And so because they don't know God, they've chosen other gods. Their, their feeling is off. Their thinking is off. They clearly need help. We often use the definition of worship as feeling, acting, and thinking in accordance with who God is and, and what his character is like. And we see that they are feeling, thinking, and acting not in accordance to who God has shown him, himself to be. They are clearly the ones that are in need of help. Which brings us to our second heading, who really needs help? Where it should be clear that it's not God who needs the help. The people need help. They've chosen other gods. They fear iron chariots. They hesitate. They stand on the sideline instead of fighting. The God in Deborah's mind the scripture, the, 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 the Yahweh, the God being revealed in scripture is one that has all power. She makes this clear in verse 4 of chapter 5. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord. Even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Does this sound like a God that needs help? Deborah knows that this is a God who makes the earth tremble, who pours rain onto the earth, can make mountains shake. As we've heard in Psalm 50, if God were hungry, he wouldn't even ask his people because all of the earth and the fullness thereof is his. So again, while Elijah's proclamation was more straightforward, who are you going to serve, God or these, these false gods, Baal, Asheroth? Deborah is, is more perplexed, like she doesn't understand. Like, this is the God of the universe, and you're not following him. The only reason why there is a question of God needing help is because of verse 23 in chapter 5. Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord. To the help of the Lord against the mighty. So you can read this verse and think, maybe God's a little petty, right? Like, they didn't come to his help. He has a mighty, you know, enemy, and they're not coming to help, so... He's, you know, he's cursing them. This is not the way to read this at all. An analogy may be helpful. Us helping God, them helping God, is like a child helping their parents do a chore. Our kids often help us to do things, particularly when they're young, not so much when they get older. And they tend to ask to help during inconvenient times, right? Like you're behind schedule, you need to cook dinner, right? Or people are coming over, so you got to make sure you get it right. And they ask, like, can, can I help? And we sometimes have an urge to say no, but, you know, we love our kids. So we say, sure, uh, you can put the water in the pot and I'll boil it. You can throw away the scraps 
after I've cut up some vegetables. Or if you're silly like me, you just tell them to, you know, watch the fridge and make sure none of the food escapes. (laughs) This is kind of what it's like to help the Lord, right? You don't need the help, but you do value this relationship. But in fact, helping God is even way better than this. It's like God is a master chef. If you all have seen some of these master chef shows, right, they take all these exotic foods, these odd things, right, lizards and reptiles and, you know, weird livers from mammals, and they turn them into this just magnificent meal that you would you say, you know what, I didn't think about eating a lizard, but I think I'd eat that, right? God is like this master chef, and we are this fumbling, bumbling sous chef. Like, we're unlearned. We don't know which meats go with which vegetables. Our seasonings aren't quite right. This master chef invites us to make a meal. He guides us to cook this beautiful dish that we could not do on our own. God is inviting us to save souls, to help save souls through our testimony. We help transfer people from the, the, the agency of darkness into the agency of, of light. We help people break from the chains of sin and bondage to being in bondage to righteousness through our testimonies, through our prayer, powered by the Holy Spirit. So yes, we can help God, but it's not because God needs our help. He wants us to help fulfill his will. We need the help. We have chosen other gods. We have distorted affections and wrong thinking. And God wants us to help him so he can help us. If we take a step back, this should be really clear, right? God is not afraid of iron chariots. Do we really believe that? But the people are. So he's saying, come help me defeat this enemy. God is not in danger of being consumed with the love of money, but we are. So he invites us to be generous and show his generosity through our giving. God is not in danger of falling into the sin of people pleasing, but we are. So he invites us to love his approval more than we love the approval of man. So God is asking for help so we can get the help. So the question we're left with brings us to our third heading. Who is willing to help the Lord? We've seen that there are some that are not willing to help. We've seen that God doesn't exactly need the help, but praise God, there are some that are willing to help. And Deborah kind of gives this shout out to a few of them in this song, and we can learn a great deal. She highlights three in particular that I'll emphasize. Barack, J.L., 
in Shagmar. So looking back uh, to chapter 4, verses 6 and 9, Barak was willing to help the Lord, but only after some encouragement from Deborah. He only agreed to battle Sisera and draw him out according to God's plan, only after Deborah agreed to go with him. Some commentaries point out that he appears to pay a penalty for his hesitation. But I think the main point is that he was ultimately willing to help the Lord. The lesson for us is simple. Sometimes we need the help from each other to do what God has called us to do. We should encourage each other to follow God's clear commands. We should warn each other when we see uh, us wandering or, or not being as focused on the Lord. We should pray to God for strength to follow him. We have an op- opportunity coming up this Tuesday for us to come together and pray for the strength to trust in the Lord. So Deborah is a model for support. She tells Barak what God has commanded him to do, and then she helps him follow through on what God has commanded him to do. Sometimes being willing to help God simply means being willing to help each other. John connects our love for God to our love for each other as well in 1 John 3 and 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does the Father, how does God's love abide in him? Barak was not in need of material support, but he clearly needed encouragement in order to follow God. And Deborah was there for him. J.L. is the second person that Deborah calls out. Verses 25 through 27 of chapter 5. Most blessed of women, J.L., the wife of Heber, uh, the Kinet, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. While Barak got the victory on the battlefield, Jael actually struck the final blow to Sisera. The end of chapter 14, verse 17, we see Sisera actually gets away from the battle. He flees. And where he flees to, while he thinks it's a place of safety, it's actually a place of someone willing to be brave for God. Sisera asks for water, J.L. gives him milk, and he falls asleep, and she puts a tent peg through his temple. This is the ultimate fate of all of God's enemies. And after we get over the initial shock of that image, right, it's actually really, really encouraging. How often do we see evil unjudged? How often do we see injustice and sin in the world being promoted instead of punished? This is a reminder to us that none of God's enemies will escape his wrath. 
And while some evil deeds may be public, God chooses an appointed time for judgment. We should trust in a God who is ultimately righteous. Our our sin will either be paid by us when we are judged or on the cross of Christ through his work. Because God is righteous. The third and final profile is Shagmar. Shagmar is actually the third judge. So Deborah's the fourth judge, and Shagmar is the the third, and he's actually the judge that we are most like. And I'll tell you why here in a second. But if you feel like you've kind of missed this, like how do we get to four? I remember Othniel, I remember uh, Ehud, learned about Deborah. Well, there are actually only two verses about Shamgar. Chapter 3 and 31 and chapter 5 and 6. And I'll read them together. After him, Ehud, was Shamgar, son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept by the byways. So unlike Barak, who's in this huge battle, unlike Deborah and Othniel and and Ehud, who have, you know, a lot of scripture about them, we just know these two things about Shamgar. Defeated 600 Philistines with what's essentially a cattle prod. And in his day, it was very dangerous. So dangerous that people didn't walk on the main roads. It says they traveled by the byways. To kind of put it in perspective for us, I guess it would be like if people didn't use 77 and 85 because they were too dangerous. They kind of used all the back roads. They used the places we would call the sticks, right, to get around. This was Shamgar's life. Now, how is that like us? Well, first of all, most of us will live our lives in relative uh, anonymity, right? You know, despite some of us maybe being on Twitter and Facebook and TikTok, right? Most of the seven or eight billion people in the world will not know us. We will not become famous. Some of you, uh, some of us may at one time or another uh, have famous faith like Paul and praise God for that. But most of us will be relatively unknown. And how Shamgar defeated his enemies is a lot like the way we defeat our enemies, You don't kill 600 Philistines in a big battle, right, on side roads, right? What's more likely is that Shamgar had to trust God over and over and over again, day in and day out. One day it was maybe one encounter. The next day it was another. And this is a lot like the active dependence that we talk much about. One day we may have to trust God to season our words with salt. The next day it may be trusting God to keep our eyes pure, fighting temptation, loving our enemies, reading our Bibles, right? Over and over again, these small battles that become our life. And at times we may feel ill-equipped, right? All Shemgard had was a, was a cattle prod, 
And sometimes all we feel that we have is, is actually something that's pretty miraculous. We got prayer, we got community, we got God's word against all the principalities you know, of, the, of the world. But ultimately, we overcome because we are with God. God has given us enough to overcome the evils that we face. So life gives us thousands of these small battles and opportunities to trust God. And if we persist, we'll look up, and at the end of our lives, we'll see salvation for ourselves. We'll see salvation for God's people, like Shamgar did. Because we've done our part to help God. We've done our part to follow and obey God. So in closing, I'll ask the question I began the sermon with, but, but in a different way. Instead of asking, are you willing to help God? Are you willing to trust the Lord? Are you willing to trust the Lord in ways both big and small? Perhaps you feel you are in a large-scale battle right now like Barack and Deborah were. You're fending off this great massive evil. Maybe you feel like Shamgar and you're just, you know, day in and day out, right? You're just kind of grinding. In either case, the solution is trusting the Lord. Are you willing to trust in his wisdom and direction shown in the life and teachings of Jesus Christ? Or will we be persuaded to trust in the ever-changing and never ultimately reliable wisdom of the world. In a world that is becoming increasingly tribalistic, both racially, culturally, politically, are we willing to trust is that God is the God of all people, tribes, and tongues? Or are we going to force God to be made in our image instead of conforming to his Are we willing to trust that God will provide for all of our needs, both individually and collectively, according to his riches and glory? If your heart is saying yes to these things, then help the Lord. Help show his generosity by being generous. Help show his global vision for all peoples by praying for our missionaries and for the people groups they've gone out to witness to. Help show Christ to the people in your life. Because through his life and death and resurrection, Christ has helped us reconcile your life to God. Let's pray together.